Hi, welcome to Guardian Australia Reads. I'm Jane Lee. Every week we ask Guardian Australia's editors what their favourite articles are, and then we read them aloud for you. The COVID pandemic has highlighted that for all our nationalist pride, we still cling on to old state rivalries. Today, Thomas Keneally puts together what pulls us apart. Lenore Taylor is the editor-in-chief of Guardian Australia. Lenore, tell me why you chose this piece. I chose this because if there's one thing we need right now, I think it is wise, thoughtful perspective. And, you know, who better to give us perspective than uh, someone like Thomas Keneally, who better to rise above the endless bickering of prime ministers and premiers and look at what all this means for the invisible architecture of our federation. Thomas Keneally is 85. He's a keen observer of history. He's been involved himself in many of the big political debates in Australia going back half a century. And also his writing is just a joy. And Lord knows we need joy. I won't give away the ending. That would be all wrong. But I can reveal that it's hopeful. Let's hear it. Hello, this is Thomas Keneally, and this is my piece, A Fractured Federation, question mark. Now, last time there was a national war cabinet in Australia, I was a somewhat dyslexic six-year-old to nine-year-old, and the nation was in great peril. And even then, the national war cabinets were not along the lines of the COVID national cabinet. The states were beneath making war policy and had no part in it. Since those days, I've seen a gradual accretion of powers to the federal sphere. There was certainly no federal health ministry at Federation. And at the last pandemic of 1918-19, quarantine seemed to be the chief health business the federal government was engaged in. A formal federal health ministry was not brought into being until after the pandemic in 1921. As for a federal education ministry, it came into being in 1968 and the first minister was John Gorton. It was only through mutual consent, an occasional successful referendum and high court decisions that the federal jurisdiction picked up its extra powers in relation to us, the governed. The most notable referendum in my lifetime was the over 90% support for changing how Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people were referred to in the Constitution. And a notable High Court decision came in 1983 which acknowledged the federal government could act on treaties it had already signed, in this case, the World Heritage Convention, to prevent Tasmania's Labor government from building the ill-advised Gordon Below Franklin Dam. The Tasmanians, in favour of the dam, reacted pretty much as South Carolina did when Lincoln called for 75,000 recruits. There are still wonderful things we could do with our treaty powers and don't. In all this drift of power to federal overstate, I was, like most metropolitan Australians, a bystander with a sentiment for the federal. I had two illusions. In the political sphere, 
I ask myself what state obscurantism could a federal government not overrule if it chose to? Sometimes, of course, Western Australia's vast tail wagged the dog, as when in 1989, Premier Burke electorally blackmailed Hawke to abandon the major thrust of his proposed nationwide land rights bill. And there is not a lot of progressive wisdom directed from Canberra to the states these days. But the point is that through a mechanism like the National Cabinet, a uniform wisdom could be made to operate coast to coast from sub-Antarctic Tasmania to Ningaloo Reef. And in the medical sphere, my other delusion was that I asked with a layman's hubris, what disease did we not have the wood on? An occasional epidemiologist would make it into the papers warning of runaway virus infections. But SARS, barely an event in the new world of which we were the happy inhabitants. But the Greek gods don't like lay hubris. Now, they heard commentators saying that we'd even got on top of reality and that we lived in a post-truth world. But all those old demi-codger gods and those potent goddesses from Olympia decided they'd show us what post-truth was. They would send something which, if we tried to subject it to all our post-truth palaver, would simply kill us. Would that be post-truth enough for us? And now epidemic helplessness is back And lo and behold, so are the states, for they are part of a cooperative national cabinet devoted to negotiating a sudden and debilitating crisis. As chaotic as a national cabinet might have been if convened in the days of that great hero of Queensland states' rights, Joe Jelke-Peterson, Premier of Queensland for an interminable 21 years until 1987. Our new version benefited us in controlling so enviably the early manifestations of the plague and less enviably the subsequent vaccination. And the state's borders are back, locked down, states exercising a power not mentioned in the Constitution and thus remaining to them. In exercising power over borders, the premiers are driven by the same force that, thank God, drives the national cabinet of the present, the advice of epidemiological experts. But there are at least two sentimentally secessionist states in Australia, Queensland and Western Australia. I argue that Tasmania is not as unambiguous as the other two, that it's really part of Victoria. Though I do not doubt for a moment the sincerity of Miss Palaszczuk and Mr McGowan, both their states have secessionist and states' rights form. In the 1980s, when I was a member of a committee of the Constitution Commission, Submissions from Queenslanders about the Constitution frequently began with the tag, 
I consider myself a Queenslander before I am an Australian. In 1975, when Whitlam legislated to end appeals from the High Court to the Privy Council of Great Britain, Jelke Peterson had Queensland rebel and refuse to submit to the federal legislation. It was as if Queensland was saying, we'd rather have British lawyers who have no idea of Australia to judge on our matters than entrust them to a high court in Canberra in which New South Welshmen and Victorians are notable members. And this reticence on his part all worked a charm for him too. No one daydreams of dying on the barricades for New South Wales, but there are plenty who would die on a barricade for Queensland. I was always reminded of what Robert E. Lee said at the start of the American Civil War when he was offered command by Lincoln of the Federal Army. I have no greater duty than to my home, to Virginia. Because the organisational drive towards federation began in the 1880s, in the aftershadow of the American Civil War. And federationists were not indifferent to the possibility of Australian secessions and the damage they might cause. Thus, it hopefully placed at the heart of the Australian Constitution the term indissoluble Commonwealth. In 1930, the Dominion League of Western Australia opened a militant and popular campaign for Western Australia to secede rather than be dragged down by the manufacturing tariffs of the southeast corner of Australia, which was then in economic trouble as well. When a Western Australian referendum was called in 1933, the Prime Minister Joe Lyons, in Perth to persuade a huge audience to remain inside the Federation, was derisively pelted with coins on stage. By a two-thirds majority, the Westralians voted to secede. A delegation bearing the new Dominion flag, the Black Swan, went to London to organise their joyous withdrawal from the Commonwealth with the British Parliament, since our constitution was an act of that Parliament. The matter was referred to a joint committee of the Houses of the Commons and Lords, which rejected the bid, it said, because the British Parliament could not act now without the Australian Parliament's approval. And, of course, they could not get that approval. But the myth of Western Australia as the rich quarry, customer and saviour of a sickly and sybaritic Eastern Australia gets a frequent outing to this day and plays like a beloved old ballad in the West. As well as that, the closing down of states in this COVID emergency has disturbed some commentators and raised the redolence of old quarrels. And there is an air that the federal equation is now under stress. And given the supineness of the PM in the vaccine rollout, the states give an impression, I believe more perceived than real, that they are willing to go their own way. 
It is as though Scott Morrison's definition of federal responsibilities during that terrible fire season, he's proud, I don't hold a hose, has turned toxic and bitten him. I fancy myself a federationist, but when Victoria closed down, I am ashamed to admit that the old serpent of New South Wales, Schadenfreude, reawoke in me. Bleak city, I cried, and closed down too. When they said they were the cultural capital, I chortled meanly. I didn't know they meant on the microbial level. I'm repenting now in this inauspicious Delta strain lockdown in Sydney. What has been shown, though, is that as much power as might have passed to Canberra, the states are not a dead letter for all their often bicameral manifestations of mediocrity and dunderheadedness. And even post-pandemic, we might occasionally see a premier closer state as a gesture, but the problem would be we need each other as customers. Indeed, the Federation of Vaccinated Citizens will return to its accustomed grind. And the most lasting change that might come out of COVID might be Zoom, which enables national cabinets to meet even in lockdown. Now, could we have a national cabinet to deal with climate change, guided by experts? It is possible And there is a positive hope the virus, amidst all its pitiless work on lung tissue and domestic budgets and the joys of human contact, will have brought it about. That was A Fractured Federation, how the closing of state borders in the COVID crisis has raised old quarrels. It was written and read by Thomas Keneally. To read the full article, go to the Guardian Australia website. This episode was produced by Alison Chan and Camilla Hannan. I'm Jane Lee. See you next time.